The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A uh, warm well, welcome to the Friday edition of Scorebox. Uh, Juliana Tattlebaum has joined the show today. Good morning to you. Good morning. Right, and I'm Steve Sedgwick, unfortunately for you. And these are your headlines. Right, the ECB finally went for a 50 basis point hike. It's first move to the upside in more than a decade following hawkish moves by its global peers. Finally lifting the benchmark rate, yes, out of negative territory. At the end of the discussion, all members of the governing council rallied to the consensus of 50 basis points. So it's, it's a strong indication on both accounts uh, in relation to the higher step that we are taking to exit from uh, negative interest rates. Well, it did it despite the election chaos now ensuing Italy. Yes, Italy preparing for a September election. We think it's going to be the 25th after the coalition collapsed and President Mattarella is forced to accept Prime Minister Draghi's resignation. There is no parliamentary support to the government and a lack of opportunities for a new majority. This condition made it inevitable for the early dissolution of the chambers. A bailout deal for Uniper reportedly nears completion, with an announcement expected as early as today, while Germany's economy minister accuses Russia of blackmailing Europe on gas. And Wall Street closes in the green, boosted by the tech giants, but momentum stalls after hours with snaps sparking a plunge in social media stocks. A second quarter results miss expectations. Right. Uh, the, the director, my, my great friend for the last 20 years, Rod, has put me here without and hiding the third block on purpose. And that's absolutely how I want it. So let's not reveal that third block. Uh, I mean, even this one's amazing as well. So look, unambiguously bullish, yeah? Not really, is it? Come on, let's get to this. Let's get to this now. The ECB has hiked rates by 50 basis points. So... Great news. We don't have negative territory rates anymore as well. They've joined the global party to normalise rates. It got us to zero. OK, let's just remember that. What's that Eurozone inflation? It's 8.6% she's mouthing across to me. 8.6% for 19 countries in the Eurozone, yeah? But we're now at zero. <laughs> she doesn't know what's coming next, does she? She has such a nice hour on street side. She's got three with me now. She's, so she'll be sleep deprived and not knowing where it's coming. What, what a gr- You enjoying it? Steve. Well, I don't think I've tried to keep it a little bit fresh as well. So anyway, look, they've gone, but we only got to the first line of the read. We've got a 50 basis point hike on the table now. They've announced new details, and we'll come to that in a moment, of an anti-fragmentation tool. I know, we can, we can ditch that mnemonic now, the AFT, because we've got a new mnemonic. It's a mnemonic, an acronym for you American friends. Uh, with the President, Christine Lagarde, insisting the central bank is capable of, quote, going big. Well, that's arguable. 
Uh, the more aggressive move comes on rates just six weeks after the Governing Council signalled in July it would see a hike of only 25 basis points. I would argue that there have been members of the ECB who have been talking about 50 for a very long time. Anyway, Lagarde said it was, quote, time to deliver after record eurozone inflation and gas supply concerns sent the common currency to parity versus the greenback. I'll come to this in a moment. I find this bit really fascinating. It's the transmission protection instrument. Italian BTPs continue to sell off amid political instability uh, and an economic concerns in the country as well. So, President Lagarde said the size of subsequent hikes will be based on the data. So that means less forward guidance. Okay, let's have a listen. We will determine in September on the basis of the data that we receive. And this is a projection exercise in September, remember? That will include all the national central bank in the exercise. So on the basis of the data that we receive at the time of those projections, we will determine what step we take on the normalization path that we are taking in order to deliver on our medium term 2%. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we are changing the ultimate point of arrival. Okay? We are accelerating the exit and we are following the, pace of no the path of normalization that we have flagged. Pa following the path of normalization plan. Okay, so far so good. So let's just see what this means, okay? Because this is where I'm at. The, the, the rate hike, great. You know, I think, I think a lot of people believe that actually negative rates, it was time to perhaps end that if we've got 8.6% inflation in the Eurozone. So this TPI, okay, let's just go through this in a little bit more detail, okay? Because I'm concerned and confused, and that's why we've got uh, an economist coming up in a moment, he's going to explain it to me, he's going to settle my nerves. Uh, TPI, okay, so the new transmission protection instrument is designed to make sure that central bank policy is transmitted smoothly across all countries in the euro area, with the scale of purchases dependent on the severity of risk. There is no capital key that I've seen so far. Remember previous plans? It was a capital key. No capital key. You can go to whichever country looks like it's got the severity risk and you can go and buy their products, yeah? They're, they're bonds. I think even the private sector. Purchases will focus on public se sector securities. But I, I, I'm interested in what, the, what we're going to do on the private sector as well. Anyway, there's a list of criteria. Compliance with EU fiscal rules. And this is where it breaks down. <laughs> okay? I know the, the producers want to move up. But look, but look, EU fiscal rules. What are the EU fiscal rules? Remember them? Yeah, stability and growth pact, yeah? 60% debt to GDP, 3% budget deficit. And this is where it breaks down. There has to be an absence of economic imbalances. Again, there are economic imbalances in a lot of the countries potentially where they're going to need to buy the bonds. Fiscal sustainability. And that's where it breaks down again, isn't it? Because is there fiscal sustainability in any of the promises we're getting potentially from the candidates for the Italian general election, which is due, we think, in late September? I'm not so sure. Sound policies and equality in line with other creditors? Again, I'm not convinced. Listen to this. She will be purchasing, they will be purchasing, the ECB will be purchasing, considering, um, here we go, for countries experiencing a deterioration in financing conditions not warranted by country-specific fundamentals. But if you've got a debt to GDP of 150, let's just say randomly, 150 to 190% debt to GDP, is 
a deterioration in the financial conditions warranted by the country's specific fundamentals. One could make a pretty good argument saying, yes, actually, a widening of spreads is warranted. Anyway, Lagarde set out which countries would be eligible for the programme as bond spreads continue to widen. The Governing Council, in its discretion, in its assessment, will determine on the basis of the eligibility criteria, on the basis of the indicators that will signal or not uh, unwarranted disorderly market dynamics, whether or not a country is eligible and whether it activates the TPI. Voila. There's no doubt about it that yesterday's ECB meeting was a huge focus for investors, in particular in bond markets. And we saw a ton of price action. We've come down significantly in terms of yields today versus what we saw yesterday coming sharply off the highs. The 10-year Italian BTP now trading at about 3.52% yesterday. After the statement came out, we'd crossed above the 3.7% mark. We saw a lot of action at the front end of the Italian curve yesterday. Two-year yields rising about 30 basis points. At one stage, the German 10-year Bund trading now about 1.216%. Yesterday, we were trading close to 1.3%. So we've seen yields now come down across the board and everybody keeping a very close eye on that spread between the Italian and German Bund. Uh, let's take a look at euro dollar and where euro stands this morning. Also, a ton of price action in the euro yesterday. Swings in both directions. Always the case with the ECB. It seems that the immediate reaction is not necessarily the one that sticks. So this morning, we're seeing a pullback in the euro versus the dollar down about four-tenths of a percent to 101.84. Turning to the European banks, there was some notable price action in banks yesterday as well. If we can get you a look at how the European banks traded, here's the overall index uh, down uh, just about 0.08%. We saw a lot of price action, though, yesterday in the European banking sector. Let's bring in Ludovic Subrin, chief economist from Allianz, to the conversation. Ludovic. Always great to speak with you. You and I spoke at the last ECB decision. Uh, quite a different picture yesterday. What did you make of Lagarde's and the Governing Council's decision first off? And then we can dive into the detail. Do you think it's really a quite different decision? I don't I mean, the surprise move of 50 bips, I guess it was a bit uh, expected with the reading of inflation and also the fact that the Fed continues to surprise on the upside on the hikes. So yes, it's a first. I think it's the end of the, you know, natural experiment of negative nominal interest rates. Um, and you know, and that we didn't get the floods, right? I think that that's the most important compared to whatever we've heard before. That you know, the ECB hiking a bit too fast would create a lot of um, turbulence on the market. Actually, it worked, and they trying to recuperate some room to maneuver. Of course. Um, the, the most important part is the first announcement on the design of the transmission protection uh, instrument, which I think left a lot of people hanging out there because the, it's opaque and there are some missing elements. And of course, there are all these questions around these conditionalities ex ante, which are not met by the country, which is the most at risk right now, which is Italy. So, you know, I think it was a good meeting, but a lot to be continued uh, in the next meeting. In terms of that TPI, Ludovic, um, there was question into the meeting whether it would be bold enough. Uh, how would you categorize it? There's still so many open questions around when it will be activated, just how substantial it will be in terms of firepower. Uh, do you think that they, uh, w- what do you think of the tool overall? 
My expectation or our expectation at Alliance is the, that we're going to use the reinvestment from the pandemic emergency purchase program. So that's about 200 billion, which is quite okay. It's actually a nice, a nice lot. Um, it, it's not, it's not a lot if you think of an interest rate shock affecting all countries, especially Southern European countries all at once, right? But the idea is to use that with a lot of discretion. Um, and, to, and, and, you know, the, the, the sheer announcement of a tool like that is supposed to um, stop any form of speculation or re-denomination risk, right? Remember, the idea behind this entire fragmentation tool is we won't play with fire. We won't go 2012 route any longer. And I think this is what the tool was supposed to do. And it met that objective already when it was announced. And yesterday, when you look at the spread's development, the question then is the design of the tool. I, I was very surprised about some of the implementation issues, you know, the type of conditions when the other part of the story is not done yet on the fiscal rules. Also, I, I thought it was borderline on the independence. Yeah, uh, we set out in a paper two weeks ago, five principles for the TPI to be performative. And I would say that it currently meets three out of the five criteria we had. One was independence. The other was, you know, how you serialize, which is the fact that you um, you buy, for example, Italian debt, but you sell something else. And we, we, we you know, propose to sell more the supranational debt. So what's happening on this side? Um, I think the, the idea of the... The, the fact that the tool is um, has conditionalities but doesn't resemble OMT. So I, I would say, you know, we got some elements. I think it's, again, we, we're going to get some more. So I think it was it's a good tool, uh, but the, the devil lies in the details with these type of tools. And, and I think we're going to have a lot of questions going forward. And I think maybe that's why markets were not super happy about these fiscal conditionalities. Yeah, I got one or two questions as well, Ludovic. I got to be honest with you, I my heard friend. You. Well, you, you, you. I wanted you, to settle your nerves. I want you to have gone your... nowhere near settling my nerves, as well you know. Look, I want this to work. Of course I do. I'm a good European like the rest of us. But this is a botch, isn't it? So let me just ask you a series of questions. You can ask them very quickly when we get loads in. Is there a capital key attached to this? No. No, right. So there's no capital key. Uh, and what would you suggest? Well, a country that has over 150% debt to GDP, how do you um, understand in this, this following, following phrase from uh, Madame Lagarde? Exper for countries we can buy bonds experiencing a deterioration in financing conditions, and this is the key point, not warranted by country-specific fundamentals. But a deterioration of the credit environment for Italy it currently is warranted by the country-specific fundamentals, isn't it? They've got a debt-to-GDP of over... You disagree? I find that quite fascinating. Say... You've got the biggest <laughs> debt loads ever for the country, and you've got a political crisis akin to any we've seen in the last two decades. And you're saying to me that country-specific fundamentals don't warrant a higher yield? Well, it's still half, if it, or if not a third of what it used to be in the same situation 10 years ago, right? And so it's going to be exactly the type of, of calibration that's going to be needed. When is it warranted? But on the fiscal sustainability side, just, just one word. Every country in Europe will have a lot more debt by the end of you know, 2023 that it currently has. If we just include you know, the short-term expenditures and purchasing power measures and the midterm expenditures, defense, climate, you name it, right? So I think the big question on sustainability is going to be who is going to buy this? And I think there is still a lot of, you know, institutional investors and investors in general that are ready to continue to buy uh, sovereign debt in Europe, right? And so that's where I don't think there is 
the conditions for actions because there are still a lot of people that are buying this. But you're right, in terms of sustainability in the common sense, debt sustainability, we are in a situation where for Italy to meet the criteria, they need to have a primary surplus of 2% of GDP. Uh, and, and of course, as you can imagine, we are very far from this and we have a political crisis. Which country, uh, so, so, which country has sustained a primary surplus of 2% of GDP over the last 20 years? I, I think maybe we can point to a brief period where a Scandinavian what? country has Italy, done it. Italy had, Italy had, but they, have, they had the deficit because of the debt service. Sustained? Sustained Italy, primary surplus? Yeah. Three, three, four years. Do you think this sustain? I think compared to okay. my country, France, this looks pretty sustained. Ah, well, we can talk a lot about why the OATs <laughs> never had a crisis in the in, in two thousand nine, two thousand eleven. We can do that another time. But look, okay, let me just go back into history to try and just put this in context. The Italians now have a ten-year benchmark yield of circa three point five percent. In the first ten years of the this century, where the Italians had a lower debt to GDP of somewhere in the region of ninety to one hundred percent, because as we do know, it was a much higher debt to GDP than any other nation going into the GFC or the sovereign debt crisis, I used to call it as well. The Italians had on average, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm amalgamating here, somewhere in the region of 4.5 to 5% um, yield on their 10-year paper as well. So when they had a lower debt to GDP, but they had equal uh, financial crises and equal uh, political crises, they had a yield which is roughly 1% higher than it is now. So why should it be 3.5% now, given the fact they've got equal political crises, but they've got a much higher debt to GDP? Because everybody else has a much higher debt to GDP. I think the dislocation in the fixed income universe are humongous. And people are just trying to understand them as we speak. You know, the amount of advanced economies debt that has been issued from the US to Europe to the other OECD countries is huge because of COVID. So, so you have a very different starting conditions, if you will. And so I think that's why it's not 90 or it's not 100 or it's certainly not 60. That is the yardstick that we're looking at to define what we consider excess debt for a given country. It's just, just look on the other side of the pond, look at the US, look at the UK. You know, it's, just, it's, it's very difficult to now say 90 was really bad then, nine, now we are at 120, it's super bad. It's not true because everybody's debt has actually increased between 10 and 20 base percentage points. Ludovic. So, it's, so it's, a, it's a benchmark, it's a peer uh, issue, because it's what then investors are ready to buy, right? And, and so, again, there is so much savings that investors are ready to go into uh, this, this debt, uh, and, and there is a compression effect on the, on the spreads, right? Plus, of course, the fact that everywhere in the world, central banks are now owning you know, 25% plus or north of 25% of all of the sovereign debt. So there is still a compression on the yield that is coming from the, the, who is owning this debt, which is the central bank. So that's why you know, the yield is so low in Italy, especially. My friend, let me get this right. The rationale for allowing the Italians to have potentially unsustainable debt levels is that everyone's got more debt. Well, that really reassures me for my children and my grandchildren. So everyone's doing it, hence it's better. And, yeah? uh, and the other yeah. thing is, Ludovic, I don't know if you've noticed, but you're, you're a young man, but there's not so many young chief economists around anymore. We're getting older as a population. There is more of a drain on those Italian postal savings, you know. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a demographic time bomb and I can hear it ticking in Japan even if Mr. Kuroda doesn't want to hear it. I can hear it ticking in China as well and I can certainly hear it ticking in Italy and Europe. Well, I, what I can see is, you know, from COVID onwards, we have, you know, depending on the zone in the US, 2.3 trillion, in Europe, 1.5 trillion additional savings. I don't know about Japan, right? Uh, so, and even though inflation is wiping out some of these savings as we speak, it's, there is still a lot of excess hoarding out there. So I'm pretty sure that this excess hoarding has to go somewhere. 
till the deposits or it's what is considered still a safe haven, which is government debt. And it is a safe haven because of TPI, you see. Because TPI ensures you that this, there is no redenomination risk. So you may want the boon over the BTP, but the BTP is yielding slightly a lot, a lot more, actually. And that's, that's the situation we're in. I, I'm not saying it's a good situation. I'm saying it's a new equilibrium. Ludovic, let me come back into the conversation here and bring it back to rates. Yesterday, Madame Lagarde said that given the decision made today, yesterday, the combined forward guidance for September is no longer applicable that they gave back in June when you and I spoke. What is your expectation for the September meeting in terms of rates? And could we see a 75 basis point rate hike out of the ECB sometime soon? You know, I mean, the markets yesterday were expecting 60. So right in the middle of between 50 and 75. I, I think 75 is a difficult one. But again, you know, if the Fed goes 100, uh, the ECB may have to go 75 just to keep this interest rate differential a bit controlled because that's the behind the scene story also, the weakness of the euro dollar, which is in part due to the interest rate differential. I believe, I believe um, you know, the ECB is really on front-loading rates path. So they want to do everything they can before we, have, we are in a softer patch when it comes to growth. So I'm still on, on the camp that they will do uh, 25. Uh, I think they could do 50. But again, the whole question is, it's data dependent now. So forward guidance is dead. It's data dependent means I will see with whatever I have at the end of the summer. Our expectation is that by the end of the summer, we still have quite a lot of inflation in the Eurozone. So maybe 50 will, will make it my concern is that we see the numbers now on leading indicators on growth, and we have a series of Eurozone countries that are growing zero. Uh, so, so that's going to be the trick, uh, you know, trying, trying to see if they can increase. In terms of terminal rates, so in terms of the room to maneuver, they have a good 50 to 75 basis points before the monetary financial conditions becomes recessive, which is what they should be looking at as, as central bankers also. Uh, but, you know, the... The, the sophistication needed when you have this heterogeneity in the zone, right? These countries that are doing very well, they're going to have very good touristic season, and other countries that are barely recovering from the manufacturing recession is going to be a very difficult uh, moment. So 25, 50, 75, I think is a very hard, it's very far-fetched for the ECB. Ludovic, I absolutely love our conversation. So thank you very much indeed for your time. No, genuinely, I, I, <laughs> me too. I, I, I feel, me too. I feel mildly you know, I, reassured. I, I, <laughs> no, no, I fear your view and, 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 and I, I share your view and I, and I understand where you're coming from. And it's true, it's, it's quite um, bewildering the situation. Yeah. Uh, and, I think, and I think we just have to be very modest in the fact that, you know, we are just playing a bit by ear as we speak. And it's not reassuring for each other in the show. No. For, for my neither, they are no. 18 and months I, old. And I know you don't know the... what world they're going to have, you know, when they're going to go to the labor market, for example. Yeah, I know you're in the south of the country, but I think there are others nearer Berlin and Frankfurt who are going to be a bit <gasps> worried about this one. But anyway, Ludovic, lovely to see you. Thanks for your great answers. Uh, we'll see you again soon. Have a great weekend, my friend. Ludovic Subran, Chief Economist at Allianz. And you can read so much more of our coverage on these momentous decisions on CNBC.com. Juliana. Uh, let's take a look at U.S. markets and how we closed up on Wall Street yesterday. It was a strong session. All three of the major indices ended higher. S&P 500 gained about 1%. Within that index, we had nine out of the 11 sectors trade positively over the course of the session. Consumer discretionary was the leader. Energy, the laggard. But it was a tech-heavy Nasdaq that outperformed. We ended about 1.4% lower. Let's take a look at what drove those gains, the U.S. tech giants. And what we saw yesterday, uh, as you can see here, the majority of the 
big tech names did have a positive trade. Tesla was the serious standout, gaining nearly 10% after that company delivered earnings in the after hours trade the previous day. Things did turn sour after hours. We're going to dive into everything Snap related a little bit later in the show, but a very different story after hours yesterday. Turning to treasuries and where we stand right now, we did have a decent amount of movement yesterday. Currently, the U.S. 10-year trading around 2.89%. The two-year well-in inversion territory up at 3.14%. Coming up on the show, Italy will hold a snap election in September after a coalition collapse and the resignation of Prime Minister Mario Draghi. We'll discuss more after the break. Yeah, and I'm told the podcast is rather okay, actually. Uh, The ECB's bumper 50 basis point hike is discussed at length, as I'm sure you're aware, on the aforementioned Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. date now for the Italian election, haven't we? I think we know it's the September 25th. We do, we? on my birthday. Wow, Very 22. exciting. God, I thought it. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah, well, it's my, my 22nd birthday and Italy's wow, early election. I'm, I'm 45 soon as well. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like that might be true. I don't know how old So, Giuliana's birthday could be the date of the snap election in Italy after Prime Minister Mario Draghi resigned. <laughs> Uh, His resignation came after his coalition allies refused to participate in a key confidence vote in Parliament this week. Draghi will stay on as caretaker prime minister until a new government is sworn in. According to latest polls by Politico, a bloc of conservative parties uh, led by the far-right alliance Brothers of Italy uh, is set to dominate the vote, followed by the Democratic Party and the populist Lega. Italian President Sergio Mattarella warned the upcoming election campaign should not distract lawmakers from the current cost-of-living crisis. I must underline that the period we are going through does not allow for pauses in taking the necessary actions needed to tackle the effects of the economic and social crisis. In particular, the increasing inflation caused most of all by the cost of the energy and food, and that carries heavy consequences for households and businesses. I hope that even in the intense and sometimes high-pitched debate of the electoral campaign, there will be a constructive contribution by everybody about the subjects I pointed to in the superior interest of Italy. You'll love this. She genuinely thinks I'm in my mid-40s. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's move on. More important matters. Um, I, I have grave concerns about where Italy's going. I, I love mm. the country. I spent a lot of time there professionally and personally as well. Um, but I think that, and it's not even the fact that I have a view on which side of the political spectrum should be leading the government. It's the fact that it is so fragmented mm. uh, and so dysfunctional that at least under Draghi, there was a sense of direction. There was a sense of actually working in cohesion with its partners. I'm afraid I have concerns, and I think a lot of the people I speak to in Italy have concerns, that actually it's going to break up a lot of positive momentum that was beginning to come mm. through in Italy. And it is, I mean, to that point, if Draghi couldn't do it, couldn't hold the coalition together, who 
could. Draghi, who is hailed as an incredible leader, you look at the opinion polls within Italy, and what's remarkable is that Draghi has tendered his resignation at a time when opinion polls show that Italians overwhelmingly wanted him to stay in office, which I think is remarkable in itself. But there was, an, there was a liberal democracy deficit, though, wasn't there? Let's be totally brutally honest about it. The most possibly, arguably the most successful governments in Italy of the last 20 years have been technocratic as well. And, and do we want technocratic governments to become the norm? Or actually, given the threats from uh, authoritarian regimes globally, do we actually want uh, liberal democratic governments to actually work? And there is a big question being raised by uh, foes out there of liberal democracy about seeing whether it can work or not. So unfortunately, the fact that what we appear to be saying, both of us, is that technocratic governments give stability to Italy. That mm. is quite a worrying trend. Mm. Uh, uh, it's an interesting point. I mean, I, I would just add to the conversation that there is huge debate about what ultimately led to Draghi's decision to depart the government. And the FT is running a story this morning that's highlighting two different Italian newspapers and the way they're depicting the situation. Uh, the Il Tempo newspaper is carrying a headline, Draghi's suicide. Meanwhile, La Stampa is carrying a headline suggesting that his government has been drowned. So huge debate. I think that's really reflective of the differing opinions. I'll just say very briefly, we know that Italy had to have a general election by, I believe, at the latest, it was June 2023. We know that there are political parties vying for, um, jockeying for the best position ahead of that. We know that Maloney uh, is high in the polls and her Fratelli d'Italia uh, was never part of the uh, national government unity anyway. So other parties who are feeling for their position, whether it be Lega or Cinque Stella, uh, those parties felt that they probably had to move to try and make up some of that ground and distance themselves from a technocratic government, make, get, make up that ground we're, we're in terms of the populist vote as well. And I think that's what it came down mm. to. They were looking for their timing, their positioning, and they felt going sooner rather than later was the answer. A little bit opportunistic. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.